morning. Uh, before I get started with uh, my message, I just want to take one minute uh, to say thank you to everyone here. Uh, as most of you know, this happened uh, two weeks ago, and uh, Becky and I got married, and so I just want to say thank you to all of you for your support. Um, this church has meant so much to us as a couple, and uh, you guys have encouraged us, you've prayed for us, you've supported us all along the way, and so I just really want to just take 30 seconds here at the start of my message to say thank you for just all that you have done for us. It has meant a tremendous amount. We feel very blessed uh, by the support we've gotten from Sprite Church. So thank you guys. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time together today uh, to just gather here uh, in this place and to hear from your word. And so we pray that you would uh, just speak to us by your Holy Spirit in the time to come, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to hear the message that you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. So, um, as many of you probably are aware, this November, uh, we will head back out to the polls once again for our midterm elections. And uh, one of the things that I always find really funny during elections is that politicians try to do things um, to identify themselves with or to appeal to, you know, kind of blue-collar, everyday, workaday people. Um, so, so they take these photo ops, and you might see it in campaign ads, you might see it uh, you know, in the newspaper, whatever it might be. They take these photo ops, uh, and, and they put on a hard hat, you know, or they sit behind the wheel of a tractor, uh, or they walk through a factory, and they do their absolute best uh, to make it look like they're at home in the places where you and I work every day, even though we know that about most of them are wealthy and most of them have been career politicians, and it's probably been a really long time since any of them you know, punched a time card or worked on a holiday because they got time and a half. You know, there's uh, a picture that I, a couple pictures I brought of this that I wanted to show you guys. Um, if you wanna go ahead, Brandon, uh, to the next slide. So th this is a little bit of what I'm talking about. So um, on the left there, you have former President Bush, right? Looking at a shovel like he's not real sure how it works. Um, which I really appreciate. Um, and then on, on the other side, you've got former President Obama using a pickaxe for a job that I'm not so sure you need a pickaxe for. <laughs> um, and he's, he's you know, wearing loafers and uh, a pair of suit pants that probably cost what yours and my mortgage costs. And yet they're, they're trying, right, to appeal and trying to look like they're just like every single one of us. And this is actually a really common thing, by the way. Uh, there is a website called uh, politiciansdiggingholes.blogspot.com um, if you want to go and see more pictures like this. But that's the goal here, right, to show that they're invested in the community, that they're at home doing hard work, and uh, that they just look like and identify with everyday Americans. And so they want to say, you know, I'm not so different, I'm, I'm just like you. And they hope that that identification, right, will earn them votes and earn them popularity and earn them favor. And so as we go forward, um, what I want you to do is just kind of hold on to that image of, of those politicians trying to identify kind of where, where a lot of us are, because we're going to come back to that image in about 10 minutes. But over the past week, uh, over, past few weeks, sorry, here at Spry, what we've been doing is walking through kind of this idea of kings and rulers. And so if you remember back a few months ago, we started in the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, there is no king. And actually, Judges repeats that several times and says, you know, at this time, there was no king in Israel. And so the people were kind of lost, and they didn't really have much guidance. 
And so we moved on from this period where there was no king into the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, where people are asking for a king and they're requesting that there be a king in Israel. And so God gives them a king. And so we move from there to talk about King David, who was probably the most famous king in Israel. And David was a great king, but clearly also had some flaws, which we talked about and we mentioned. But we did that to establish this idea of kingship, um, that people desired a king and that God was going to give the people of Israel and give his people a king. And so last week we did a time jump and jumped forward into the, into the New Testament to talk about the book of Acts with this new series, King Jesus and His People. Now we know that Jesus was never an earthly king, right? So he was never like the Roman emperor, he was never the king of Israel in the same way that David was. But Jesus' kingship, just by his nature, uh, that he is the son of God, that he is Christ, right, means that he's king over everything. And so what God did was he took that desire that people had for an earthly king, and he said, I'll do you one better. Uh, I won't give you somebody who's going to be a king for a time or a king in a specific place, but I'll give you a king that is king forever over everything, over the universe for all times. And of course, that's Jesus. And so as we look at the book of Acts, what we see in Acts is how the early church uh, lived under the rule of King Jesus. So the very first followers of this King Jesus in the first few years after the resurrection is this, the Acts gives us the story of how they lived. And so one of the things that happened uh, in those early days after Jesus' death and his resurrection was just an explosion of belief in Christianity, in the Christian faith, in the idea that Jesus is Lord. And what happened was uh, Christianity went from about 20 people in the first few days and first few weeks after the resurrection uh, to a few hundred people a few weeks and a few months after the resurrection to then a few thousands. And what we see it throughout the book of Acts is that thousands and thousands of people were coming to faith at a time. And so in one place we get an account that there were 3,000 people that became believers in Christ at one moment, um, and another place there were 5,000 people in another moment. And so you see the church just growing exponentially over this time. And actually within about 200 years of the resurrection, uh, the church went from 20 people, those first you know, 11 disciples plus a few others, to more than a million people, a million believers in the Roman Empire in just about 200 years. In a day, of course, where there wasn't internet, there wasn't cell phones, there wasn't a lot of the ways that you and I communicate and, and spread a message. And so what we see is that the, the Holy Spirit was moving and the Holy Spirit was bringing people to faith in Christ in those early days and establishing God's church. But the truth is, is that even though the, the church was gaining popularity and it was growing, not everybody was excited about that. Um, few people that weren't would be the, the Roman authorities and the Roman government. Uh, the whole Roman government was founded on the idea that Caesar is Lord. And so the Christians were running around saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And so that caused some problems and some issues. Um, actually, the early Romans called Christians atheists. I don't know if you knew that or not, but they would call them atheists. Not because they didn't believe in any god, but because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And so uh, there's some early Roman writings uh, during the early, you know, church period where Christians are called atheists. But one of the other groups was uh, the, the Jewish leaders at the time. 
because a lot of Jews were converting, they realized that Jesus was their Messiah, and so they were becoming Christians. And so a lot of the Jewish leadership had issues with this. And one of those Jewish leaders was a man named Saul, uh, Saul of Tarsus. And he was a really important figure uh, in Judaism at this time, and he was a persecutor of Christians. So he hated Christians, hated what they were about, and didn't want to see the church thrive. And so he kind of took it upon himself to make sure that the church was kind of stomped out. That is until Acts chapter 9, which we read just a couple of moments ago. Uh, In Acts 9, Saul is riding to a city called Damascus. And he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He's going for the specific purpose of rounding up and arresting and potentially killing these Christ followers that are living in Damascus. But a funny thing happens on the way there. He's riding along the road, and all of a sudden, a bright, blinding light appears. And Paul is not, or Saul, who becomes Paul, is knocked off of his horse, and he hears a voice. And this voice says, Saul, Saul. Can you go to the next one? Now, he doesn't recognize the voice right away, but he knows something is going on. And, and Saul is a, a good Jewish boy. He's read the scriptures. He studied them very hard. And he has a hunch about who is speaking to him. Because throughout the Old Testament, what happens when God speaks to someone is usually he does this. He calls their name twice, which he does to Saul here. And there's usually a big light show that kind of comes with God's appearance. And the voice says to Saul, says, why do you persecute me? And Saul responds, well, who, who are you? And the voice says to him, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now, those of us that have been around church kind of know the ending of this story, um, that Saul converts here to Christianity. He converts to becoming a, a Jesus follower. He becomes the Apostle Paul, right, who wrote most of our New Testament. Um, so he becomes a church planner, he becomes a pastor, he becomes uh, this author who wrote a lot of our Bible. And so usually when we hear sermons on Acts 9 here, that's the way it goes. We talk about Saul's conversion. But what I want to focus on um, are these words from Jesus. Oops. When he says, why do you persecute me? Because I think that's kind of peculiar. Because we, we wouldn't necessarily expect Jesus to say that phrase, right? Saul uh, hated Christians. He participated in the stoning of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. So he was there when this Christian was killed. He himself rounded up and imprisoned and murdered and persecuted Christians many, many, many times over. And so we would expect Jesus to say what? Why do you persecute my people? Why do you persecute the church? Why do you persecute my followers, maybe? Or even, why do you persecute my disciples? But instead, what he says is this. Why do you persecute me? And the fact that he says this, I think, is extremely important for us and our identity as followers of Jesus. Because what it shows is that when we're part of the church, there is no distinction between him and his body. There's no distinction between us in the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, that's you over there and that's me over here. 
he sees his church and himself as one and the same. And so what we see here is that when we suffer persecution, just like the early Christians did, we don't experience persecution, um, you know, alone. That Jesus is there right alongside of us. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, in our country at this time, we don't experience persecution in the same way that early Christians did. Right? No one is rounding us up, putting us in prison, or threatening to kill us because we're gathering for church in your county. Right? And that's something we can be very thankful for. And we also don't experience persecution like people even in other parts of the world at this very moment are experiencing persecution. If you go to places like India and China and the Middle East, there are people that are being rounded up and imprisoned and killed for their faith. Uh, I have a friend in India who um, does ministry, plants churches, and the Indian government currently is very hostile towards Christianity. They want India to be totally Hindu and they want to throw anybody who's a Christian out. And one of the things that he does as a ministry is he does VBS, just like you and I do VBS here at Spry. And what he'll do is he'll get a big truck and he'll drive around the neighborhood and let the kids hop on the truck and he takes them um, to do VBS and at the end of the day, he brings them back and they hop off the truck and they've, they've gone to VBS. And he gets more than a thousand kids when he does VBS during the summer. But a couple years ago, the local authorities who were hostile towards Christians caught wind of this particular fact that they did VBS. And what they did was they trumped up charges against them and said that they had kidnapped these kids. Now, I don't know what kind of kidnapper takes a kid and then returns them three hours later, but apparently that's what they thought was going on. And it was a clear case of persecution. We're targeting you because you are Christian. And thankfully, we don't have to deal with that. But I want to expand just for a moment kind of our definition of what it means to uh, be persecuted or what persecution is. Uh, we often think of it in those really dramatic terms, right? We're, we're going to suffer. We might even die for our faith in those, like those situations I just described. But persecution can happen a lot of ways in a, different, a lot of different contexts. It can be implicit or explicit. It can be big or small. And the reason I bring this up is because I think every one of us here has lost something has been pushed to the margin in some way. We've been criticized at one point or another. We've faced challenges because we wanted to be faithful to Christ. So when you get up on a Sunday morning and maybe your husband or your wife is not a believer and you're getting ready for church and they say, why would you go use half of your Sunday to do that? Right, or when a friend who doesn't believe in God um, tells you that your prayers are a waste of time. Or that time you were in a relationship and you put up boundaries because it wasn't what you thought God wanted you to do, and that person walked out because they weren't willing to walk that with you. This, isn't certain, this certainly isn't persecution on the level of the early church being rounded up and killed, right? But the principle is the same, that following Jesus is costly. And so we need to reflect on whether or not our faith at this current moment in time is costing us anything. Ask whether or not our faith is putting us in situations where potentially we're being persecuted. Because Jesus tells us in the Gospels that if we're doing this discipleship thing right, we will experience resistance. A couple months ago, um, I was talking to a student at Franklin and Marshall's uh, InterVarsity Club. He was a very bright kid. He was a pre-med major, and he's studying molecular biology. And unfortunately, uh, in our culture, there is a divide where really there shouldn't be a divide. Um, between science and religion. 
And, and he was describing to me at times how hard it is for him to be a person of faith inside of a scientific discipline. Because for a lot of people within science, uh, to be a person of faith is, is an outrageous idea. Like, why would you believe in this thing that you can't see, that you can't touch, that you can't test? And if you believe in, and he was describing to me how if you believe in God as he does, or, or you follow a particular religion, a lot of times you're looked upon as not being as smart as everyone else. Like there's probably something, along, something wrong with your brain if you believe in this, uh, this fairy tale. And he was experiencing that. And I look at his situation and I say, yeah, that's hard. But that's what it means to follow Jesus, right? That we're going to go against the prevailing culture in a lot of ways, and that your discipleship should cost you something. And so a lot of us have felt that. we felt that loss. But what's shown here in this passage is that when we lose because of our faith, when we suffer because of our walk with Christ, God doesn't sit by as a passive observer, right, and say, oh, that must be tough. I'm really sorry. No, he says, why do you persecute me? Right? Jesus is persecuted right alongside of us. What they do to you, what they do to me, they do to him. And so I'll go back uh, to those politicians at the beginning that I spoke about trying to fit in and identify with the common man. To a certain degree, that's what we want from our leaders. We, that's what we want from our kings, from our presidents, whoever it might be. Someone that can identify with us. Someone that knows our concerns. The truth is, is that when we suffer, when we lose, we need something more than someone who just identifies with our problems. That's what a good friend does, or that's what a therapist does. And they say, oh, I'm sure that's really hard, or I understand how you feel, and that can be helpful. But when everything is on the line, and we're really losing something that's meaningful because of our faith, we don't need a politician, we don't need a therapist, what we need is a savior. We need someone that can bear that burden with us, and give us power, not give us vague encouragement, but give us literal power to bear that burden and be even more faithful. We need someone who can help us stand fearlessly in the face of those hard decisions and help us believe, yeah, this is hard now, but I'm living for something bigger than just your momentary approval or the affirmation of the culture. Or even in some cases, for some of our brothers and sisters, I'm dying for something bigger than momentary approval. And so that's where we come upon this mystery that is the church's union with Jesus. Uh, as we are incorporated into, um, as we're incorporated into the church, we go forward one, there we go. As we're incorporated into the church, what we realize is that, that we're part of his body. That is what the, the scripture says. It's the language the scripture uses, that we are part of the body of Christ. And what happens is that Christ took on flesh in the incarnation, and so he wasn't like one of those politicians, right? He wasn't just taking on a photo op. He wasn't just trying to look good and look like he can identify with us. He became one of us. There was a, a group of Christians, or a group of uh, heretics, actually, in the first century called the Apollinarians. And what they believed was that Jesus was God in a bod. What I mean by that is that it was the brain of God, the mind of God, just inside of a human wrapper. And so the human part didn't mean anything. It was just a way for us to kind of identify better with God. Like God was kind of just masquerading as a person. But that's not what happened. 
right? Jesus didn't just identify with our humanity in that vague kind of way, like a politician. It wasn't sympathy, it wasn't empathy. He did the unthinkable thing and he became our humanity. And so think for a second of what being more like Jesus allows us to do in the face of persecution. Right? If he's united to us in our humanity and we're united to him as part of the body of Christ, then we can follow in his footsteps. And if we throw ourselves at his feet and follow his teaching, he can teach us to be more faithful. To grow closer to him means to be more committed. And when we face those situations where our faith is going to cost us something, we can make the right choice. You are able to pay that price, to remain faithful. To know that, that suffering persecution isn't all on you, but that Christ suffers with you and even gives to you what you need to remain strong in the suffering. And so when we are persecuted, we do not suffer alone. So I'll close with these words from the book of Hebrews. The author says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, um, it's not easy to follow your son at times. Um, we're trying to break away from old patterns, trying to break away from sinful habits, trying to even sometimes break away from relationships and things, Lord, that, that hold us back from following you. And those choices are hard, and they cost us something. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength by your Holy Spirit, strength by your presence, strength by the, the blood, and the power of your Son, Jesus, to make the right choices when we come upon them, um, to embrace the cost that following you sometimes uh, makes us pay. But Lord, all the while with the hope of joy of knowing uh, that there's something more, that pleasing you, glorifying you, is a far better and far greater reward uh, than just the momentary approval of this world. And so Lord, we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. You taught us to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, 